Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended okay well welcome to our podcast uh, listeners to another episode of protect and serve which is arguably probably quite a somber day here in the united kingdom with the news in the past 24 hours of the passing of her majesty queen elizabeth ii an incredibly prominent figure in our lives and a constant in the last certainly in my life of 38 years and the 70 years that she's reigned over the united kingdom and the commonwealth but I'm incredibly honoured this morning to be interviewing uh, one of the UK's most senior ethnic minority police officers and current assistant commissioner at the Metropolitan Police. Described by colleagues as a clear communicator, resilient, approachable, sincere and one of the best people to have been led by and a police officer of the utmost integrity who stands up for what he believes in and supports his officers in times of uh, great need. He is also the recipient of the Queen's Police Medal, an award bestowed on those who have demonstrated gallantry and distinguished service. Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to start, if we can, it's an important time to take a moment and reflect on the life of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who sadly passed away yesterday in Balmoral at the incredible age of 96. She's meant so much to the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth and countries far and wide, uh, and they've been touched by her passing in the last 24 hours. You've received the Queen's Police Medal, an incredible honour, and equally you've been charged with Her Majesty's protection for much of the last seven years. How do you reflect on her passing and the important role she played in your career as our head of state? Well, like almost everyone else in the United Kingdom and probably around the world, I've been listening to nothing but um, incredible plaudits for one of the world's greatest leaders. 
you know, as a statesperson, uh, she really did have no equal. Uh, and in this country, it's incredibly rare um, to find somebody that nobody has a single bad word to say about, ever. You know, in private, in public, both sides of the media, both sides of the House, Republicans who, whether they dislike the monarchy or not, never dislike the Queen. And that is an incredible legacy. And as everyone says, she was a constant in all of our lives. The only monarch most of us have ever known. Uh, and that was quite, um, so it's been quite an emotional moment. There is no doubt about it. You and I discussed this morning, should we go ahead? And both of us came to the conclusion that um, she'd be horrified if she thought people stopped working because she had died. And she did everything to secure a brilliant succession. I never met the Queen personally, despite having been in charge of her protection and her family's protection. But I have met many members of her family and she did a wonderful thing because I have met King Charles, and I think he is a man of great wisdom, great intellect, huge compassion. I've met many people from the Prince's Trust whose lives he's changed. You know, this is not a cliff-edge moment for the United Kingdom. It's a transition that she organised brilliantly, and we will have a great king as well, and I'm incredibly proud to be a crown servant. Uh, and, yeah, slightly emotional. I think that's an important point you raised there is that I think people are worrying about the next generation of monarchy and, and what that looks like for our country. And I think a lot of people sitting there with question marks, but I think as you've quite eloquently put it, King Charles III will be an inspirational leader. He will he will no doubt lead in a different style that is to be expected, but equally I think he will do a remarkable job and you know the heir to the throne uh, in Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, who will become the Prince of Wales equally. We've got some fantastic people amongst the royal family who will take us through a new era in, in, in monarchy for sure. I agree entirely. I've, I've met the Duke of Cambridge as well, and he is going to be a fine king himself. I have no doubt about that. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. Well, I think that's a lovely way to start our podcast. I will certainly reflect on this one fondly as us having an opportunity to, to remember Her Majesty the Queen and, and, and look forward to, to sharing this episode out in a number of weeks' time. Let's get into um, the, the detail of the podcast in terms of yourself and quite an incredible career that, that you've had within the Metropolitan Police Service. Start at the beginning, as with every podcast, like a good detective, you want to examine someone's life and what led them to to to, to join the police. After spending three years in what I believe is banking and sales management, what was it that made you join the police? And, and how did your family, father from Calcutta and a mother from Wales, how did they, what was their response to such a career change? Um, I'll try and be as brief as possible, but it's almost like writing a memoir. So, I mean, I was, um, I never, I went to university, but I didn't want to go. 
I wanted to be a soldier. Um, I'd wanted to be a foreign correspondent before that. I'd always wanted to be a writer. Um, I was too shy to be a writer and I had a massive car accident and couldn't complete um, the selection process to be a soldier. So I had passed good grades at school, so I ended up drifting into university. I did have a, uh, an offer uh, to go and work for Miles and Spencer, so I could have ended up in Miles and Spencer, I guess. But again, I, it felt easier to drift into university. My family certainly, certainly expected with my grades that I would go and get a degree. Um, and I was part of Thatcher's generation in the 80s, and everybody wanted to be rich. You know, everybody wanted to be... You know, I, I don't think they think the film Wall Street was a, you know, a warning. They thought it was some kind of, um, you know, lecture or MBA and everyone wanted to be Gordon Gecko. And I guess I fell slightly into the camp of thinking, well, if I do, economics was always my best subject. If I do economics, I'll be a business person, a banker. I will be a success and I will earn lots of money. And that's probably, it's easier not to think about it just to do that. And I did join a bank and I hated every minute of it. And I'll be honest with you, I think I resigned just before they sacked me from, because they will have found out at some point that I can't count to save my life. Don't tell anyone in counterterrorism whose budget I've just managed for a very long time. Um, but I also didn't like the values, you know, and I, I don't, this is, a, this is a very personal thing. And by the my sales career was because I resigned from the bank, disliking the values, having applied to join the police, not realizing we were at the start of a recession and there was an 18 month waiting list to join the police. And I arrogantly thought I'd get a job because I was the last graduate intake in 89 to graduate into a full job market. Uh, and it was hard to get a job as a graduate and I couldn't pay my rent in London. I had three pounds left when I landed a job uh, in sales, which kept me going until I could join Hendon, but it wasn't my ambition. And in both jobs, I ended up being a salesperson. You know, banking in the 80s was terrible. It was about selling loans to people who probably couldn't afford to pay them back but as long as they took the insurance, that was great. And they were training us to be salespeople. I could have predicted both banking crashes from what happened to me then. And the values and the culture of banking in the 80s were appalling. And I looked at that and I thought, hang on a second. My, the two greatest heroes in my life are my mum and dad, 90 years in the National Health Service between them, a doctor and a nurse. Um, shouldn't I be a, in public service? Uh, and I never looked back from that. My, as soon as I realised that actually that's what I dream about is actually helping people at the worst time of their lives. Quite often when they don't think much of you and don't care much for you, but it doesn't matter. It's not about that. Uh, helping the most vulnerable and also locking away bad guys. That seemed to fit everything I'd thought about as a child. You know, I was raised on Westerns and war movies and Lone Ranger and, you know, Star Wars and everything was good versus evil. Wow, I get a chance to do that when I become a police officer. Now, my father was a police surgeon uh, I was a sportsman from the age of five. Lots of our referees were local police officers or local RAF. Um, so I had a sort of military and a respect for authority. And, and my dad was a police officer. So I didn't have one of my best friend's fathers was Deputy Chief Constable of Staffordshire um, and was rising up through the ranks as I was a child. We went to school together from a very young age. I, I had good sort of reason um, because of the values and because of respecting the profession to do it. But I will be honest, uh, and they didn't really, well, certainly my father never told me. He died seven years ago, still the worst day of my life by a country mile. And um, But he was incredibly proud of me, but he didn't want me to be a police officer. And it wasn't the traditional Asian, why aren't you a lawyer, doctor, you know, accountant or chemist? It wasn't about that. It was about, he thought I was too sensitive for the job. Uh, and when I thought that meant, you know, my ability to deal with violence, 
traumatic, sudden, unexplained death, and blood and gore and muck and bullets. It wasn't actually about that. What he never told me was uh, he thought I wouldn't be able to cope with the culture and the racism. Uh, and of course, he never told me because he didn't want to interfere with my ambition or my dreams. Uh, my mother only told me that on her 80th birthday last year. So it was quite something. So they had a very high level of anxiety and fear about me joining, but they've been incredibly proud of me ever since. Because your brother, if I'm right, is, is he a doctor? Your family, other family members have pursued this medical career? Yeah, I have an elder brother who's a doctor. Uh, he's a consultant. He's a very, very impressive doctor indeed. So my dad got what he wanted. Somebody followed him. My brother is uh, just like my father. They are, I mean, their IQs are off the charts. I mean, people think I'm quite bright. They should meet my brother. They should have met my father. Um, there is absolutely no chance I would have had of being that, um, you know, uh, getting where he got to. And my younger brother is a director of an electricity company who uh, worked his way up with no qualifications, used to climb pylons. Uh, you know, he's still the only director of the company who knows actually how to do the job his front line does. Uh, I'm so incredibly proud of him, you know, uh, and I hope they're proud of me too. I think equally it demonstrates though that you can start at the bottom and work your way up through each different level and step having and, and, and encompass all that experience until you get, because you've been described as the copper's copper, you know, you've been through all the ranks, you've done all the hard yards to get where you are today at the rank of assistant commissioner, uh, an incredibly proud moment for you and your family. But I think it just demonstrates with hard work and it, you can get there. Anything's achievable. There are no barriers. Yeah. I, I always think my last incredible deputy was a, a man called Dean Hayden, who was one of the, probably the finest detective I've ever worked with. And part of the reason I slept, I could sleep at least some hours a night was because of him, where he was a cadet. So he went from cadet to deputy assistant commissioner. I think that's impressive. So, you know, I had a degree. I joined on a fast track program. It was the Home Office Accelerated Program. I've had lots of benefits. I've had a year's worth of leadership training in my 30 years to get here. But yes, I was a police constable who walked the beat. I used to get very frustrated with graduates who wanted to join the police. And I would ask them, the, the first question they would ask me is, how long do I have to spend on the beat? I said, well, as, as long as possible until you know how to do the job. Uh, and they'd always walk off and go and join KPMG or somebody else. And I used to get very frustrated with them. You know, it is an experiential job policing. You can't learn it from a textbook. It's a people job. You have to learn it by interacting with other people. I know you know this, Oliver. So, um, you know, the fact is it makes a big difference going from police constable to assistant commissioner and doing all of the ranks and doing the hard yards. It makes you what you are. And I've spoken to a couple of ex-heads of Sandhurst and because we always get compared with military leadership. And both of them said, we'd kill for your model. It's a bit of an unfortunate expression from a soldier. But, you know, at the end of the day, their model is something that was enforced on them that they they would rather people joined as a frontline person and learn their leadership from the ground up not you know as a lieutenant straight out of a year in Santos. and that's a really interesting thing to think about you know um particularly when we're talking about direct entry into policing and we've experimented with it and i don't think it's been a success what was your training life at the academy in the 90s like? What was your, do you look back on those academy days? I must admit, you see, I wasn't very good at school personally. I, I, I wasn't great academically. And I look back at my academy days incredibly fondly. I was very lucky to win several awards when I graduated. And it was probably when I excelled in life because I found a vocation I, I really wanted to do and, and loved doing. So I'm eager to understand what your experiences were like in the academy, obviously acknowledging that you'd been to university and, and were on the, the graduate scheme. 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really that that was difficult, although when I joined, very few police officers had a degree. So I certainly got more stick for being a graduate than I ever did for being mixed race or, uh, you know, um, preferring the, the correctly shaped ball rather than the round one as a rugby man, not a football man. I got much more stick for being a graduate. Um, you know, lots of brains, no common sense is what people say. I think when people realised I actually had a combination of both, then I, I started to get some acceptance. But I joined, I was nearly 25 when I joined. I'd had two careers. I'd lived away from home for, you know, seven years. Um, you know, I was engaged. I, you know, I was a mature man. And then go, going to the academy, which was, as you call it, a hand and training school, as we called it, for 20 weeks and being closeted, um, you know, in, okay, we had sort of university-style accommodation. We weren't exactly in barracks, so it wasn't... Uh, but, you know, they were awful. Those blocks were condemned when I was there 30 years ago. They were only taken down five years ago. And being shouted at by regimental sergeant majors who were square-bashing us, you know, teaching us how to march around. I, I found all of that, I found all of that, you know, um, slightly hilarious. And being shouted at because there was a speck of dirt on your shoe or your razor-sharp crease in your shirt wasn't correct. I was thinking, hang on a second, I thought I was joining a job with more, you know, less parent-child and more adult discretion. And let's be honest, there are very few jobs that have more discretion and power than that of being a frontline police constable. Mm. Um, that's not how you were trained. You know, you felt like you were being trained as a 17-year-old squaddy. Uh, and now, when I look back in hindsight, I miss all of that because what it created was a camaraderie with, with teams and, a, and between teams. There were lots of sports events, lots of you know, pitting yourself against other syndicates, you know, uh, you created lots of the good culture of police, the camaraderie and the excitement of being part of a team, you know, and I was a team player, I was a, you know, a sportsman who really enjoyed team sports, much more so than individual sport. So I got that. And so that was a wonderful thing. And I still look back on those days quite fondly. And actually, it was far harder than people think. There's a complex profession, as you know, you know, that amount of legislation, you're, you're halfway training to be a criminal lawyer um, just to be a police constable. And for a lot of people who didn't have any qualifications or a degree, that was really hard. So a lot of the classroom-based work was very hard. And then, of course, translating that into real-life scenarios, well, for, you know, people only just got their head around the law. They couldn't... It's like learning to march. You know, you can't put your feet and your arms... Um, together in the right way well it was the same thing you know I could know the law but when I was confronted with a crime in front of me and a suspect I'd have no idea what to do about it um, actually it trained you very well I happen to think you could have done it in half the time but I'm and that's not an intellectual thing that's just there were lots of sitting around doing nothing and actually again with hindsight that echoes policing moments of sheer terror and adrenaline and lots of moments of boredom that is policing so maybe that was good training. I don't know. Maybe somebody thought of that. It's interesting because one of the themes we reflect on during the podcast is ordinary people doing extraordinary work. And, you know, our officers are out there 24, 7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They go to many different variety of incidents and jobs where the public call for their service or they require. And, you know, this ability to elementize offences, understand what you're dealing with, what you've got to meet. You know, as you say, you're, all, you're almost training to be a lawyer to understand. Fantastically complex profession. Yeah, incredibly complex. And, and, and sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes we get it very right. But I think we get it right more times than we get it wrong. And well, we definitely do that. And a friend of mine, John Sutherland, hates the expression ordinary people doing extraordinary things, which I use a lot. He says it's extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. And he is right in some respects, but I, 
I think what we have to think of ourselves as is ordinary people. That's what Peel wanted. You know, you're just an ordinary member of the public given special powers. But when John says extraordinary, I, I know what he means. We should be the best of society. If we're given the powers to keep society in order, we ought to make damn sure we are the best, which is why it's so appalling when somebody lets us down. Not somebody who makes a genuine mistake. We all make mistakes all of the time. We're human beings. But when people are corrupt or dishonest or or downright criminal, uh, it hurts. You know this, Oliver. It hurts every single police officer who's good and decent and, you know, extraordinary in what they do. I, I couldn't agree more. And I wanted to reflect, what was the first incident that you went to that really demonstrated to you that policing provided unique challenges that are not always easy to overcome? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I because this sounds a bit glib, it sounds like I really thought about it, but it's because I do talk about it. I talk about these things as touchstone moments. So there's probably three big incidents in my career if I've got time, but I'll say the first one was one of my very first days on independent patrol as a probationary constable coming around the corner on Battersea Park Road and hearing screaming. And I walked around the corner and there was a naked uh, elderly lady in the middle of the road, traffic swerving around her, a very busy pedestrian area, you know, lots of shops. The screaming was actually a 17-year-old girl who'd come out of a baker's and was trying to wrap her penny around this woman and t- take her to the, to the pavement. Um, and I thought, oh my God, oh my God. I literally thought, who's going to help this poor old woman? Then I realised that person was me. Uh, and so I spent the next nine hours trying to get a, you know, look after her, get her medical help, thanks to this wonderful 17-year-old girl. Nobody else stopped in the streets in a car. Shocking, you know. And I thought, well, if we're not here to protect the most vulnerable people at the worst time of their lives, who is? She was an 80-year-old with dementia. Her family were on the south coast, had no idea she'd wandered out of her house. GP hadn't seen her for a long time. Anyway, we arranged all of that and got her family to see her. Nine hours of work, not a single minute of it anything to do with crime. So when later on a Home Secretary talked about you should be fighting crime and nothing else, I thought, no, that's not right. My job's to win trust and confidence. If I'd ignored that person in front of the public um, because it wasn't a crime, what would that have said about me and my profession and what we were there to do? So that was the first moment that I thought, this is complicated. This isn't really about crime fighting, but this is important. And uh, I've always thought about that moment ever since. And the second one um, was what we all worry about when you join the police is how am I going to cope with sudden, violent, traumatic death? Mm. And uh, call to a uh, train surfing was very popular in the um, in the early 90s. So kids would jump on the side of trains and ride them as they left stations. And we were called to a 12-year-old kid who'd been dragged under a train and effectively dismembered. And I still remember to this day the sound of the RT driver, the area car driver, the most experienced person on our shift, who was first on scene, who could barely, um, you could tell he was effectively being sick. And we were the second on scene, me and my driver. My driver was a probationer and I would have some 12-month service and I was a probationer of about six-month service. We were calling up for the sergeant. He was nowhere to be found. So in terms of leadership, you have three police constables at an unimaginable scene of horror with hundreds of people, because it's a very busy junction station into central London, who are traumatised. They don't know whether they're witnesses, they don't know what's happened, they're angry, some of them who haven't seen what's happened. And having to deal with all of that, and my friend, who ended up as National SIO of the Year last year, 30 years later, just before he retired, 
The first thing he said, bear in mind, 12-month probationary copper, he said, we need to find witnesses because this might be a murder. And, you know, that was the first time I thought, that is a cop. That is somebody who understands that their job is to investigate, not just turn up, regardless of the uniform, regardless of the experience, there isn't a separation between uniformed police officers and detectives. And I I could go on longer. I've got hundreds of touchstone moments which make you realise just how difficult, just how important split-second decision-making, being able to cope with both grief, trauma, witnesses, your own personal trauma. I mean, that was a... I can close my eyes and describe the scene in detail to you today. It's incredible. You you know, you decided to to pursue a career as a detective after your early period as, as a constable and doing general duties policing. And in the, in the late 90s, you took on a tough role as a detective sergeant tackling a drug epidemic in a tough part of any city, inner city London. What were your experiences during this period? Well, I was a detective sergeant and I'd always joined police aiming to be a detective. There was a book on my um, shelves called um, Scotland Yard, which described the the man, and they were all men then, the man with the bag from New Scotland Yard who would go out to the county forces when they couldn't cope with a serious crime and would solve them for them. Just the year before I became a senior investigating officer, the Met did away with that post. I was very upset. But anyway, so I decided to be a detective and I tried to get, I was a trainee detective as a constable, but was never a substantive detective constable. Um, I had to go back from interchange from being a police sergeant at Brixton to try and get back into the department as a detective sergeant. That is hard yards, let me tell you. On the night duty occurrence book, every night, um, my colleague, the DC that I was on duty with, would put um, um, DS Basu and DC Mitchell, for instance, and every morning, the early turn CID would put a line down from the D, making sure that it read P. Uh, and I was first introduced <laughs> to a very experienced SIO when I became an SIO as Wood Made Good, which is an expression of uniform turned into detective. And he turned around to me and said, no such effing thing. So that, that's, <laughs> people would be listening to this thinking I'm the most experienced detective in the country, saying so he wasn't actually even a detective. And anyway, I eventually get back into the department. I'm a detective sergeant. I worked on the crime squad at Brixton, um, ran that. That was a lot of low-level drug dealers, handlers, thieves, um, very, you know, kind of low-level, serious crime, but low-level players. And then I ran the intelligence unit. And part of my job in the intelligence unit is the DS there. At a time when intelligence-led policing was new, you know, who knew that we would rely on intelligence to be good police officers? How strange. Uh, I'm actually married to a woman who wrote the seminal paper on intelligence-led policing. Uh, a very impressive doctor of criminology, and people still study it. But back then, no DS wanted to run the intelligence unit. That's a ridiculous thing. You know, if you're a detective, you rely on intelligence. And running that gave me a massive insight into the problems of South London and the crack epidemic that had come from, you know, the United States. Uh, and we had imported that and was becoming a massive problem in London and fueling a lot of gangland activity. And one of my jobs is to brief a unit called Trident, And in those days, when I was running the Brixton Intelligence Unit, Trident was about 20 guys, all of them men, all in a porter cabin in the backyard of a a station in South London. 20 people. That was Trident uh, in the sort of um, 97, 98. Uh, And I remember briefing their boss, Steve Coopis, one day, and I was sitting in the porter cabin. And his men, they were all men, were doing paperwork, uh, and suddenly there was a call, and they all grabbed stab-proof vests, which they're not even bulletproof, stab-proof vests. They all ran out 
of the Pause Company, they all went and kicked the door in of a yardy crack dealer down the road, who's an incredibly violent man. No armed support, nothing. You know, this is just what they were doing to try and disrupt uh, what was a crack epidemic and a firearms epidemic in London. Now, Steve won't, won't uh, thank me for telling that story, but I just thought these are the bravest men I've ever met. And I was a DS. And then I was in the main office at Streatham a year later, and I, I remember one particular late shift where I dealt with um, an attempted murder overnight from a boy who was in critical condition in hospital, interviewing at his bedside and being told very firmly that he didn't want to cooperate. I won't use the language he used or how he described me. Going to another attempted murder that happened just as I came on shift. And I was, as I was finally getting back to the station, having also got a crime scene um, officer out to a stranger rape in a block of flats nearby, I was walking into the back of Stratton Mick. I used to be a heavy chain smoker. I was busy lighting a cigarette. A man in the queue on an oxygen tank was shouting at me. So, and I couldn't understand why, because I was a bit traumatized from my, my late shift. And my boss came down the steps saying, you've got this, haven't you? There's just been a stabbing. Um, but you're all right, aren't you? Uh, and then walked off down the road with his bowler hat and his briefcase. And I thought, what do you mean I've got this? You know, the night is not on yet. And I've got a fourth major crime in one shift in Lambeth. And uh, the crime was a bus driver had been stabbed through his cabin. So through the street by somebody who just took exception to his driving. And I, and I just thought, uh, this is crazy. And when I look back on those years, they were incredibly exciting and incredibly exhilarating. At one point, I was supposed to be the supervisor and I had 27 live major crimes on my books. It was before all the specialist units like Sapphire and Trident, you know, you were dealing with everything except murder. Uh, and I was supposed to be supervising my other detectives' crimes. And the only difference with... I remember looking at my pay packet when I was a superintendent and realising I had earned more with overtime as a detective sergeant in Lambeth, and, uh, which was a real kind of unbelievable moment. I don't think they pay superintendents enough, by the way. It's the only rank that's not paid enough. But, my God, it showed you how hard you worked. It was the time when my work-life balance went out the window and I mm. was not a good time with hindsight. It was a, a time of forgetting everything except your duty, which sounds incredibly noble, but actually has really serious consequences for your health, for your relationships, for your friendships, for everything. Um, you know, it was a regular 80-hour week, non-stop. And when the only thing that was different from today, where officers work under that pressure today, is it's even worse for them because the crimes are more complex, because there's a digital footprint to everything, and the scrutiny they're under. You know, I can't remember a single supervisor ever looking at one of my crimes. It's a terrible thing to say. No, I have to think I'm a professional. I was doing really well, but who would have yeah. known? And now today, they're sergeants, they're detective inspectors, they're DCIs, public inquiry, IOPC. You know, detectives live in fear of making a single mistake. And I think that pressure and that trauma uh, is really difficult for the, this young generation of detectives. You talked about Operation Trident. Um, for our listeners who that may not be f- too familiar with Trident, can you tell us what it was established to fix? What were the challenges and what were the what those operations presented to you and your colleagues? Yeah, I thought it was the most amazing thing the Met ever did. And it's still my proudest moment of working for Trident, by the way. But um, So I went from briefing them to actually being one of their senior investigating yeah. officers many years later. And I, Trident was established in 1998 because of Yardi crack dealing in South London, where violent robbers would go and take out other robbers and shoot them dead. And they shot 
uh, a woman in a flat uh, in front of her two kids, killed her uh, and robbed her of her stuff. Uh, and the Met eventually said, well, in the, well, not just the Met, the black community said enough is enough. These are our worst people within our own community committing crimes against us. Uh, and we want you to do something about it. And they actually came to police and said, you know, if you do something about it, we will help you. So it was set up as a kind of joint initiative with the black community to help the black community get rid of the scourge of this particular issue. Uh, I'm still very proud of that. I mean, it, it gets a lot of bad press for being called people who dealt with black on black crime. And that is a very simplistic way of looking at it. It was the black community ask, not only asking us to help us, help them, but helping us do it. Uh, and I think at that time, we were going a long way towards bridging that huge confidence gap with particularly the black Afro-Caribbean community in London, the sort of second and third post-Windrush generation, because we were seen to be helping them and doing something about it. I mean, I locked away lots of murderers. The proactive teams took out lots of gun runners and, you know, disrupted lots of serious crime. Uh, and the community did thank us for it, you know, and that the, the successor of that unit still exists today. But in the 90s and the early noughties, we were very successful. And I think the community did. We're grateful for that. You also focused on Turkish, Vietnamese and Chinese organised crime. What challenges did policing these groups provide in the context of a global city like London? Yeah, I mean, that was later on after I'd left Trident, I, when I got promoted to detective superintendent. So I ran proactive teams in London that were dealing with what they called level two crime. Then. So not national crime agency, cross-border organised crime, but not low-level Brixton crime squad crime. That bit in the middle that actually we didn't have enough proactive capability on the front line to deal with it. So I, I was working in serious and organised crime. I was a kidnap and extortion commander, but my day job was to run four proactive teams to effectively build them, set them up, and deal with that lower level, you know, that sort of level two crime. And that was dominated by lots of drug dealing, protection rackets, prostitution, run uh, in places like the West End by um, Chinese triads, gangs, a lot of what we call modern slavery now and illegal immigration, lots of very junior, vulnerable people being coerced into, you know, um, doing that kind of work. With the Vietnamese, it was the setting up of cannabis factories. Um, I'd love to say I've been incredibly successful in all of this work. The reality was I wasn't. It's still a massive problem in London uh, and around the country. And the third thing was the Turkish community. And the Turkish community was a different level. The Turkish community, uh, criminal community, gang community was very well established, very professional, I would describe those as proper NCA targets, and we were dealing with those. So all three communities suffered from one thing, a lack of cultural competence in policing. If we're not diverse, if we don't understand the cultures we're dealing with, this is the problem we're dealing with policing in the most diverse city on the planet, with the most languages, the most religions, the most cultures. Every cop allegedly has to be an expert United Nations professional in rainbow nations. You can't possibly be like that but you have to have some understanding of what you're dealing with and you have to partner with the community, just like we did with Trident. Now, it was much more difficult with the Vietnamese, the Turkish uh, and the Chinese communities to get that sense of partnership, largely through fear. So, you know, get lots of gangland, countering gangland crime is largely about trying to find intelligence where people are too terrified to tell you. They all know, by the way, everybody knows. Um, it is trying to get people to break that wall of silence. It's very current at the moment with what's happening in Merseyside, of course, with the uh, the horrific shooting of the young girl. But I, um, 
you know, that was always the problem in Trident and it was always the problem in gangland crime with those communities as well. We had, we had some success, but that's because I had some just incredible teams who knew what they were doing, you know, particularly the leaders, experienced detectives who knew proactive policing, how to use covert policing techniques to capture bad people who were good at evading police, um, but also knew how to put a complex case file together to go to the Old Bailey and convict people. That is, that is actually quite a rare skill in a detective, being able to do the reactive work to get the case among some of the leading barristers in the land trying to unpick it, but actually doing the hard yards in the cars, in the observation posts, following dangerous people, calling in support, you know, doing armed operations, all of that hard yards only works if you actually put the person behind bars and keep the community safe afterwards. I work with some incredible people who were good at that. In 2003, uh, you were the senior investigating officer, often described as the SIO, for the murders of Tony and Tony Ann Byfield. This case put you in the national spotlight. Um, what challenges did you face from overseeing such an investigation as a DCI? And importantly, what did you learn from this experience? Well, the biggest challenge was nobody thought I could do it. So, I mean, it was the biggest murder case in the country at the time. Um, there were, so there were lots of challenges. It was my first um, new murder as the in-frame SIO, as in the person who was going to have to investigate it, not the person who was going to hold it overnight until the in-frame team came in. I wasn't on call, I was in-frame. So by 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm at Hendon getting the first briefing, then I'm down at the crime scene, and the enormity of it begins to hit you. You know, you kind of realise this is the murder of a seven-year-old girl, her father, Bertram, was a, a, dr- a low-level drug dealer, but this is a seven-year-old girl, so the whole world will be watching. And the, the awful truth is, is back in the 90s and the noughties in Trident, we were the only people who cared about black-on-black crime in this country because it was black drug dealers killing other black drug dealers. This was so unusual in that the collateral damage of an innocent seven-year-old uh, put it on the front page of every newspaper in the world. So, yes, it's your first case. Um, I got a phone call from uh, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner, what we used to jokingly call Murder One. He was uh, in charge of murder and the great Bill Griffiths, a great hero and mentor of mine. Um, I got a call from his staff officer saying, Bill is going to come and see you just to check how you're getting on. This is a couple of weeks into the inquiry. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, oh, great. You know, be fantastic. I'd never met Bill Griffiths before. He was a legend. I thought this is going to be difficult. And she said, don't worry, he'll probably take you out for a pint. He's lovely, he's just coming to check you're okay. Bill grilled me for about two and a half hours on every detail of the inquiry. And I didn't know at this time that he went back to the management board to effectively say, it's okay, you can leave him in charge, he's got a grip. And I didn't realise that's what that conversation was about. Because uh, I hadn't gone to bed yet. I, for two weeks, effectively, I'd kept myself going on black coffee and snatched sleep. And we'd had major breakthroughs in the case, you know, obvious suspects, obvious forensics. I thought, this is, we're going to break this quick. We didn't. It took three years to solve it. So it taught me SIOs need to be open minded because your first theory is not necessarily the one that uh, is the actual truth. Um, it taught me to deal with the pressure of media. I, I used the media a great deal. The media were both a huge help and a massive hindrance. So they wouldn't put it on Crime Watch to start with because they said we're an entertainment show and no one's interested in the death of a black drug dealer. Well, hang on a second. There's a seven-year-old girl here. Nine months later, when the editorial team changed, it immediately went on Crime Watch and we got our first breakthrough. So the me- and local media in Liverpool, where the suspect was eventually caught, 
were fantastically useful for me in all kinds of ways. So I have the media to both curse and thank. Um, but I learned my stripes about dealing with the media in 2003, standing in front of the cameras, being a Trident SIO, and particularly on that case. Uh, and the pressure. You just, you, you have to understand how to deal with that pressure when all of your people are looking at you and expecting you to make the right decisions. And the one thing I learned then was you can only sleep at night based on the calibre of the people who work for you and whether you listen to them or not. And I had the most extraordinary team of people who um, had no fear of telling me what they thought about my investigative strategies. So, uh, and together we managed to solve an awful lot of those crimes. When, when I arrived, our detection rate in North London was 20%. You know, most detection rate in homicide in this country is 98%. And when I left, it was 90%. And I, um, you know, four years later, I'm incredibly proud of that. And it was because of people like that team who cared about the most unsolvable crimes because, you know, there's never any witnesses. You're lucky if you get... There's, I had no CCTV, no forensics, no witnesses, nothing on that crime at all. So to get from there to a result where... Joel Smith got the first 40-year sentence without parole that's ever been granted in Trident. As Bill Griffiths said to me, it was a masterclass. The only people who get sentences like that are terrorists. That was a bit prescient for what I was later to do. But, he, um, but you know, it was a real moment. And I, I, you can't get there without detectors of that calibre. And that's what Trident was all about. Everyone who's come through Trident has been an extraordinary detective, including that amazing detective. Um, Deputy, I talked about Dean Hayden, who used to be the head of tribe. When you say no one thought you could do it, was it your colleagues or the media that thought you couldn't do it? Colleagues. So I, I was the youngest senior investigating officer in, in the Met at the time. And uh, by experience, not by age. Uh, well, by age and experience, but <clears throat> certainly by experience. Uh, and it was my first, I had a load of cold case murders I was dealing with, um, but I, it was my first case of a uh, fresh case of that magnitude as well. Um, there was definitely the thought that this should go to the most experienced senior investigating officer in the uh, in the in the Metropolitan Police, and I have to say it was quite interesting because when I I was asked to do that job to set up the third murder squad in Trident, a fourth one was set up in so there was one north, one south, twenty one other murder squads in the in the Met dealing with other homicides, but in London for Trident, black on black murders and and attempted murders there was. One squad north, one squad south. And those SIOs were dealing with up to 100 major crimes each, which was ludicrous. So I was brought in to set up a new squad in North London and another SI was brought in to set up the fourth team in South London. And all I would say about that is when I was offered that job, five very experienced senior investigating officers of homicide turned it down before me. I wasn't picked because I was the best SIO in London. I was picked as the one who was too stupid to say no. And my view was, it's such a difficult job. No one will care if I fail because they think I'm going to fail anyway. But if I succeed, I will have proved that I am a proper detective. That was my thought process. But it was such a tough, you know, such a tough time. Was that one of your biggest touchstone moments, a career-defining moment, that particular case for you personally? Oh, yeah. When, whenever all of you have interviewed many cops, when they talk about, you'll know exactly where their heart is when they talk to you about the first time they say, when you say, what did you enjoy most in your career? You go right back to the thing that defines you. And for me, it's always those years in Trident as a DCI. You're listening to part one of my chat with Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu. 
In part two, Neil tells us of the challenges and pressures he faced when leading the United Kingdom's counter-terrorism response during one of the toughest years the country ever faced with terrorism-related incidents. I always try and think about the fact that we were successful. You know, 29 plots disrupted, 600 people convicted of terrorist offences. But none of us talk about the 29 plots we foiled and the 600 people we convicted. We only think about the ones that got through. And that's the reality, you know. So it's the, well, the pressure it's immense. Next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. The team at Protect and Serve would like to take this opportunity to offer our sincerest condolences to the royal family. <laughs>